This is Jamda on the go. Your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of Amda, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. Here's our host of JAMDA on the go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to JAMDA on the go for November 2022. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Once again, I'll be speaking with JAMDA co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Phil Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan and Brown are both faculty in family medicine and geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome, Dr. Sloan and Brown. Hi, Carl. Glad to be here. Hi, Carl. Hi there. Yeah, and Phil, you're kind of winding down. I think we only have one more after this before you move on into the uh Sunset of retirement from at least this gig. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we got mixed feelings about it, but um, mainly it's, uh, well, I think we're going to have a good one with the next, um, both with the next podcast and with the subsequent podcast, because we got good editors on board and um, we've got a lot of good stuff coming up for December. Well, I, I wouldn't expect anything different. So, all right, well, today's topics are going to cover a wide range of subjects, including two perspectives on nursing home staffing levels and resident outcomes, a review on the nursing home physical environment and its impact on resident well-being, and then finally, a study of the association of different B vitamins on dementia risk. So our first study that we're going to discuss looked at national data on antipsychotic prescribing and asked the question, do facility staffing levels influence prescribing rates? And I guess, you know, intuitively, it might make sense that if you have less staff, it would be to your advantage to have people uh, more sedated, um, you know, at the most simplistic way of, of looking at it. So, Dr. Brown, what can you tell us about this study? Yeah, I, I love this study because I think it does exactly what you were just alluding to, Carl, it it proves what we think is probably true. Um, so just a little bit more about the work that was done. I think we know inappropriate use of antipsychotics is an indicator of quality of care in long-term care facilities, according to CMS. There's been evidence to suggest that staffing levels in long-term care may be associated with the rates of inappropriate antipsychotic use. So this study examined the association between staffing and antipsychotic prescribing in long-term care facilities. The authors completed a cross-sectional study investigating the association between reported staffing levels and the frequency of inappropriate antipsychotic prescribing at U.S. long-term care facilities between the years of 2016 and 2018. Data from the Nursing Home Compare and Long-Term Care Focus data sets were linked, which contain information from the Minimum Data Set Database on Facility Characteristics and Staffing Measures. More than 10,000 facilities were used. I think the results were interesting. The mean staff level for the facilities was identified as 3.69 staffing hours per patient per day. 
and the mean antipsychotic use rate across all facilities was about 15%. There was a 0.75% decrease in inappropriate antipsychotic prescribing per unit increase in overall staff to patient ratio. When looking at staffing types, a 3% decrease in inappropriate antipsychotic prescribing was observed per unit increase in licensed staff hours. So more specifically, we saw that a 2.25% decrease per unit increase in RN staffing hours, a 1.8% decrease per unit increase in LPN staffing hours, and nursing aid staffing hours were not associated with more or less antipsychotic use. These findings provide support for policy-based interventions to decrease antipsychotic use in long-term care facilities by improving staffing skill mix and staffing levels. The results might also inform nursing staff education and training on antipsychotic prescribing practices. But I think that this is all great information and, and proves a point, but the question still remains, how do we effectively recruit the staff to meet these numbers and to provide best care to our patients? Right, right. Well, uh, those are interesting findings. And I, I mean, I I wonder if, uh, I guess the next hypothesis is if you have more staff, does that mean you will then automatically use less antipsychotics or less inappropriate antipsychotics? And I mean, with over 10,000 facilities included, uh, I'd expect these results to be reliable. I mean, that's a very, very large number. It's, you know, more than half the facilities in the country. Uh, but I wonder, uh, how was the determination of inappropriate antipsychotic use made for the purposes of this study? Because as you both know, the only recognized diagnoses for quote-unquote appropriate use, according to CMS, are schizophrenia, Huntington's, and Tourette's. And yeah, we see so much Huntington's and Tourette's in our buildings, right? Um, and uh, so even people who have an appropriate FDA indication, like bipolar disorder, schizoaffective, or depression with psychosis, um, they are considered to be receiving inappropriate antipsychotics, at least with respect to, to the quality measure. So is that what they used in this study, Mallory, or, or what? Yes, Carl. Actually, you're exactly right. Based on what the article states, what you've just alluded to is correct for how they defined inappropriate antipsychotic use. Yeah, I think we know, though, as clinicians in facilities, sometimes it's not me that actually makes the choice. It's the family that so desperately wants help and caring for their loved one. And we've run out of all of the other options. And so we use antipsychotics. I think there's a whole host of reasons that are not always in line with um, necessarily staffing. So this is an interesting article. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think uh, there's kind of a widespread and and probably not entirely inaccurate uh, notion among uh, people, consumer advocates and so on, that, um, you know, these medications are used to chemically restrain people. And those of us who really are working in these settings, um, at least I would like to hope I'm speaking for most of our AMDA members and most of our listeners that it's not a matter of convenience. We do this to alleviate the stress. And, uh, you know, we try other things first. We try non, non-pharmacological measures and um, it's sort of a last resort. And it's, it's really used uh, to not for staff convenience, but to um, alleviate the stress on the part of the residents uh, and or maybe some of the other residents that they could be uh, 
uh, impacting with screaming and things like that. But of course, you know, the bottom line is that having more staff does seem to help. Yeah. Well, you can't argue with the numbers. I mean, there's a pretty clear association here. So uh, I'm sure more will be revealed. And uh, but it is a, it's an interesting study and I'm glad we got to talk about it. So. Uh, our next paper is going to add some additional information and context about nurse staffing levels and resident outcomes. And its findings are, I think, both logical and a little bit surprising. Uh, so, Dr. Sloan, can you tell us about this study? Oh, with pleasure, Carl. You know, the, the authors include some of the country's best nursing home health services researchers, several of whom we know personally. Um, and, you know, they did a really interesting thing, a kind of thing I hadn't really seen done much with um um, with data, the question they sought to address was whether the daily daily nurse staffing variation had an impact on hospitalizations and emergency department visits. So they looked at daily payroll data from over 15,000 nursing homes during the whole years 2017 through 2019. And then they crossed it with Medicare fee-for-service data on emergency department visits and hospitalizations during the same day. So it's a day-to-day analysis, really interesting thing to do. What they found is that the difference maker is the level of licensed nurses, just in this previous study, RNs and LPNs, and not so much the level of nursing assistant staffing, just as we found before in in Mallory's study. High nurse staffing levels, they found, have two important impacts. And this is, this is, you take some thinking to realize, you know, what's happening here. First, the likelihood of being transferred to an ER or hospitalized will be increased on the day when you have more nurse nurses available when nurse staffing level is high, but transfer rates will be decreased the day after the nurse st- staffing levels are high. Now, to me, this is quite logical. You know, if you think about it, more nurses means more assessments and decisions about treatments of patients who've had a recent change in condition. Some will be transferred out because of the acuity of the situation, but others will have treatments initiated that will prevent the need for a transfer. Um, so, you know, what I, we make of this policy-wise, to me, it validates what other studies have shown, which is that nursing staff are critical to quality of care. Also, parenthetically, that nursing homes are challenging places where there's always stuff happening and you know, it's hard to take care of everything. And so, if you put more people there, they're going to find more stuff and some of it's going to need to go to the hospital. So, they send them to the hospital. Other stuff, they're going to ameliorate. So, the next day things are better from a medical perspective. Okay. All right. Uh, and I, I see that uh, in this in this particular study, it didn't uh, particularly uh, highlight the role of the RN. It's, it, just, it was just nursing across the board, licensed LVN, LPNs, and, uh, and RNs. Yeah, it did have, it, it did show a slightly greater impact of RNs, but it wasn't super great like it was in the other one. Okay. Well, so I'm not exactly sure what to make of this, uh, and I really haven't dived into it in detail, but I think your theory makes sense, Phil. The uh, the lack of impact of nursing assistance on actual trips to the emergency room or hospital, that doesn't surprise me at all. But I'm just trying to wrap my head around this increased hospitalizations on days with high nurse staffing. And I guess it's days of high nurse staffing, following days with low nurse staffing or something like that. And uh, do you think this means that because of less nurses before those days, uh, people are not getting transferred who should be or that people are being allowed to get uh, uh, sicker um, because of the lack of staff? Uh, And then I'm wondering, 
for how many days after a high staffing day does that hospitalization rate stay lower or did they look at that? Um, they didn't specifically look at that, but um, those are, I think, reasonable hypotheses. You know, you know how challenging it is, how much stuff is happening at a nursing home, and um, th- this doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I mean, you just wonder if you could just keep the same staffing level of each day. It's just, it's uh, it's hard to hard to really interpret that. But I, I admire, you know, uh, Deb Saliba and all of them. Just uh, uh, the sheer amount of uh, of data mining that had to be done for this study, if nothing else. We'll return to our program after this brief message. Do you enjoy Amda's podcast series? Join Amda for 2023 to gain access to our live. And archive webinars, members-only forum, JAMDA, our monthly journal, e-newsletters, discounts on society resources, networking opportunities, and more. Plus, you'll get a free electronic copy of AMDA's brand new Delirium, Depression, and Dementia Clinical Practice Guide. Learn more and enroll at paltc.org. That's paltc.org. And now back to our podcast. Um, all right. So next we're going to shift gears from staffing to the physical environment of nursing homes. And, you know, heaven knows we've got a lot of very old uh, antiquated uh, physical plants. And in, in most states, it's difficult to uh, get licensing for new uh, new facilities and so on. So this paper uh, is a scoping review of the effect of the physical environment on the health and well-being of nursing home residents. Uh, so Mallory, please uh, fill us in on this one. I think we can all pontificate on how the physical environment might influence our residents, but it's not been well-defined. So the authors in this study aim to review scientifically based knowledge on the specific topic of how and to what extent the physical environment of nursing homes influences the health and well-being of our residents. A systematic review of research done on the physical environment in nursing homes has on residents' health was completed. And this review included articles in PubMed and in the Cochrane database that were dated before um, April the 5th of 2022 and were written in the English language. Studies were included if they were conducted on nursing home residents and if they examined associations between components of the physical environment and health outcomes. Of 1,347 articles retrieved, 59 of these met the inclusion criteria. 40 were observational, one was a survey, and 18 were interventional studies, of which five were randomized control trials. Certain environmental features repeatedly showed significant positive effect on residents' health, such as noise reduction, turning off lighting, natural light, easy access to a garden in the dining environment, and resident-centered interior renovation. Nursing home size was not found to have a direct relationship to resident health and well-being, although it is related to more than only the physical environment, so social environment's important. This review provides guidance in selective areas of the physical environment for the design of nursing homes with potential benefits for the health and well-being of our residents. Yeah, well, that's interesting. And also a lot of it seems pretty intuitive. So uh, let's say a nursing home wanted to hire you as a consultant, Mallory. What would be your top recommendations to improve residents' health by modifying the physical environment? And I'm I'm thinking maybe some of our listeners will want to make recommendations uh, for some of these changes in the facilities where they work? Yeah, I think um, 
it's all about lighting. Like let's the the light if we can let light in and be sure we turn off lights in the evening, dim the lights and really allow folks to live in the day and sleep in the night. I think that is a great way of healing. And so I think that'd be my first focus is ensuring lighting is available and, um, and it's not so artificial. Goodness. Yeah. I think that's really a good, uh, good and fairly easy starting point. And then there are of course things that are not necessarily physical environment related, but that have to do with the culture of how you do things. And I keep seeing, you know, when I do chart reviews and so on, that they're checking vital signs uh, in the middle of night shift. Sometimes it's like, Hey, wake up. It's 2 AM. It's time to check your vitals or people that are ordering uh, meds uh, Q6 hours around the clock. And so, Hey, wake up. It's midnight. It's time to take your medicine. Hey, wake up at 6 AM. It's time to take your medicine. And um, I think disrupting our residents' sleep is a real unkindness. So, so, Certainly physical modifications that can be made that would enhance the ability to get a good night's sleep are a good starting point. Phil, anything to add? Uh, what would you do in your, you know, the nursing home you'd be consulting at? Well, I'm a serious environmentalist, Carl, and uh, I've done a lot of work on um, physical environment. Um, and I can't really spend too much time talking about it, but I'll make a couple of points. The first is they only found like 59 articles, most of which were descriptive, which it, the fact is that not there's not that much really good research on the physical environment, in part because there's no drug companies to fund it, and NIH doesn't fund it much either. That's the first thing. The second thing is there's clear evidence that having a private room is better than having a semi-private room, particularly for infection control, but also for quality of life. Um, there's also pretty good evidence that smaller subunits or units um, that are reasonably self-contained feel easier for people. And finally, I would mention um, outdoor access, you know, getting outdoors every day. Um, you know, it's pretty hard to get enough light. You need something like, um, uh, you, you need, I think it's 2400 lux, um, but some large amount of light, more than you get from interior lighting to um, entrain the circadian system and you know, let people normalize their day-night ratios with their day-night rhythms. And so, but going outside for 15 or 20 minutes in the morning, will do that, even if it's cloudy. So, and plus you get vitamin D. There's a lot of work suggesting that just going outdoors, you know, for a little bit every day is really helpful. So those are things I think about. Great. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and listeners, please uh, take heed and see what you can do to uh, make some of these changes. I mean, getting people outside, there's maybe staffing challenges associated with it, but uh, that is certainly something that's, uh, it's not difficult to get people outside for the most part. Yeah. Really, there shouldn't be staffing challenges as long as the design makes it easy for people to, to go in and out and to have some, some um, oversight and for them to be safe. Now, in places where it gets really cold, you know, the only real thing to do is have, you know, skylights, you know, or a you know, a, a solarium or something that um, allows and allows access to light without having to go outside. Right, right. Well, in the facilities that have that are fortunate enough to have something like a central courtyard, where uh, you know they, people can be sort of looked after from from inside, uh, but they're uh, in a contained area. But anyway, well, great. Enough talk about that. And uh, our last topic is one about which there's quite a bit of controversy, and that is whether B vitamins are linked to the development of dementia and conversely, whether high intake of B vitamins can help prevent dementia. 
So, Dr. Sloan, what can we learn from this study? Well, you know, nutrition is, in my opinion, the area of medicine with the highest proportion of opinionated people. <laughs> what about vaccines? <laughs> I don't know. In the medical field, I think we're we're pretty much we're pretty much aligned about vaccines, but I mean, we all have crazy ideas, you know, include myself included, about what we take that isn't uh, <laughs> that isn't justified. But anyway, B vitamins is one of those areas. So I like this article because um, it's a systematic review and meta analysis on the association between v, B vitamin status and dementia risk. Um, it only includes cohort studies, thankfully, um, by which I mean studies where the B vitamin status is measured at the beginning of the study. And the individuals were followed up later to look for outcomes. They had 11 cohort studies, and sample sizes ranged from 233 to over 3,600 participants, and follow up time from 2.5 years to 9.3 years. So they're pretty good studies, median follow up of five years. The outcome of interest was either Alzheimer's disease or dementia, which, as we know in the research world, are pretty much interchangeable from a practical perspective. So here's the results. Of five studies that evaluate the relationship between vitamin B6, that's pyridoxine, intake, and dementia, no statistically significant relationship was found. Of five studies that looked at serum folate and risk of dementia, they found an association between high, real high folate levels, like above 10, and dementia risk, and not between folate intake and dementia risk. Of five studies evaluated a link between B12 levels and dementia, no significant association was found. Same is true of seven studies of B12 intake and development of dementia. So as for the bottom line, not that this will change the opinion of the true believers, it helps to support the notion that vitamin supplements are not likely to do anything to prevent dementia, at least not in population studies. I know that true B12 deficiency is associated with Korsakoff syndrome, and that's a form of dementia, but it's so rare as to not have had any impact on the population level. Uh, that's very interesting. And we did not even tread into vitamin D territory here, right, Phil? So uh, I did find it interesting that high folate levels were associated with dementia risk. I'm wondering how robust was that association? And do you have any theories about why that would be, Phil? Because it, it sounds like taking supplements itself was not specifically associated with an increased risk. Yeah, I don't really understand that. Um, and maybe Mal has some thoughts about it. Who's getting too way too much folate? Yeah, I, I mean, I see. I sometimes order folic acid levels and and get back these sky high levels, and I, I think it's pretty obvious that it's because people are taking a supplement. It doesn't sound like uh, taking a supplement was specifically associated with increased dementia risk. But I, I'm just trying to figure out what that means, if anything, clinically, or as far as advice to give to, to our patients. Yeah, I, I don't have much to add. I'm not sure I've seen major complications from a high folate level. Yeah. Well, maybe somebody from our audience will uh, will call in or email in and, and give us some thoughts. Yeah, because I, I certainly, you know, as with most of the uh, water-soluble vitamins, it's like, you know, it's not like you can OD on it, right? So, uh and, and even with the fat-soluble vitamins, I think it takes a lot more to become toxic on them than we than we used to think. Yeah, it makes you wonder if it is it a spurious finding that there's something associated with that that has nothing to do with folic acid. But I don't know. I, I'd be interested to know if anybody has that has a thought about it. 
Yeah. Well, then you then you start thinking, well, is it people that maybe uh, drink a lot of alcohol and somebody's told them they should take folic acid? And, you know, maybe uh, anyway, we're really we're getting pretty far afield. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of thing that would, that would be yield a spurious finding. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, um, any any last minute thoughts uh, from either of you? I'm wishing you both a happy holiday season and uh, any anything else? All right. Looking forward to doing that final one. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you're on short. Yep. Thanks. Thanks, both of you. So that's going to wrap it up for this Jammed On The Go podcast. Under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Phil Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care geriatrics and beyond. Please take a look at the November 2022 issue. If you have any comments about the podcast, please get a hold of us, uh, especially if you can explain that folic acid thing. Uh, so, Dr. Sloan and Dr. Brown, thank you for spending your time with JAMDA on the go. Thank you, Carl. All right. Well, references for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for JAMDA on the go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Mm-hmm.